to some of what we had covered last time. Then I've got something here I'd like to read tonight in the uh, book by, this is Dictionary of the New Testament by Hastings. It's a four-volume set. I have one here on the Apostolic Church. Remember, last week, uh, in studying this subject, we looked at Vine's Expository Dictionary and then another one, the Encyclopedias, on the, on the subject itself. I believe the International Bible Encyclopedia. We looked at the subject of hell, and we found, first of all, that, that the word hell is an, is an old English word, and it means the unseen. That's the literal meaning of the word. And over a period of years, uh, the, it got associated with the term of, of fire because of the context that it's found in, in the Bible. And we have then this meaning, when we think of hell, we think of today, uh, like hellfire and brimstone and burning and all. But the original Old English word simply meant the unseen. Okay, now, when we look at the Bible, we noted that as we look at these particular Greek words that are translated hell, we don't have one word. That we actually have several words. And the most common is the word Hades. And the word Hades is a Greek word that literally means the unseen. And so that, that hell, in 1611, when the King James translators translated the Bible, was actually a good rendering uh, for the word uh, uh, Hades, meant simply the unseen. But the other word is the word Gehenna. And Ge is uh, Greek for valley, and then Hinnon. And so we got the valley of Hinnon. And we noted that as we read the Old Testament, we find that there was a valley outside Jerusalem that was named the Valley of Hinnon. And in the Valley of Hinnon, there was a place where people had worshipped in idolatry, even to the extent that they uh, burnt their sons as, as offering to pagan sacrifices. And so it became known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnon because of all the sons that had been offered as a sacrifice. And in the days of Josiah, God fulfilled a prophecy that had been uttered under Jeremiah that he would destroy that place. And so Josiah went in and completely wiped out that place and burned it up and desecrated all their idols. And it was a big judgment situation then. It was passed in the Valley of Hinnon on idolatrous worship in the days of Josiah. Well, from that time on down to the time of Jesus, this place is a fire that burns in that valley outside Jerusalem. And it came to be used in a way that we might use a garbage dump. And so all their refuse was taken out there and burned, and even the bodies of criminals were burned there. And sometimes when there were wars and fights and there was uh, too many people to actually uh, give a burial to, bodies were cast down there and just simply burned up. And so it had a very ugly connotation because of its background in idolatry, and also it's this continual fire outside of Jerusalem. And yet at one time, it had been this very beautiful oasis-type situation where they worshiped their idols. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus uh, talks to the Jews about the judgment on their nation. And the judgment was going to come as a result of the rejection of him. And he compared it to the judgment on Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnon. And we can see this in the context. Well, the King James translators uh, start the ball rolling here, and they take and they render the word Hades with hell, and hell was a good rendering of the word Hades. And then they come along and use the word hell also to render Gehenna. 
Well, then there's another Greek word, tardidus, and they use the word hail to render it. So we have three distinct words that, uh, all Greek words, that this one English word hail is used to represent. And why they did that, you know, you and I can only speculate back. We'd have to go about now. We'd have to go back and read about their theology and what they actually believed at that point in time. Uh, from what I could see, that there's, they don't seem at that time to have the same background and understanding of a historical nature uh, that we have today pertaining to the Valley of Hinnon and things of that nature. And so it, it's like as they translate that with the one word hell, they tend to think of those words as synonymous. In other words, just as we have different words to say the same thing, that it's as if that they were thinking of it in that way. But of course, we, we know quite a bit different now. But yet that word is there. So when we talk about the Bible doctrine of hell, in reality, it's more accurate to say the Bible doctrine of Hades, the Bible doctrine of Gehenna, and the Bible doctrine of Tartarus, and go back and, and look at them. Well, then when we look further, we, we found out that, uh, that there was this literal valley of, of Hinnon, and it was a very ugly thing, and it was a thing that made its impression in the Jewish mind, and over a period of time, it came to be used in a figurative way as the abode of those who die separated from God. And we look and we see that Hades now was thought of as the place where your spirit goes when you die, whether you're good or bad. No matter what your situation, all spirits head into the Hadean realm. And we looked at the passage that Jesus uh, went into the Hadean realm. Well, when Jesus went into the Hadean realm at his death, the passage, uh, Jesus had number one told Lazarus, the man on the thief on the cross, that this day thou shalt, thou shalt be with me in paradise. So he said he was going into paradise, and yet Peter identified where he went is into Hades. And so we look and, at this passage and other passages dealing with paradise and Hades, and what seems to be the case is that, that in Hades, that Hades is the all-receiving uh, area for our spirits. At least it's identified by that term. But then in Hades... Uh, paradise is used to depict the abode of the righteous and also the third heaven used to depict the abode of the righteous and then on the other hand Gehenna is used in a figurative sense to depict the abode of the unrighteous and so we have Gehenna used there and the word paradise is a Persian word really that had reference to the Garden of Eden and this best experience in man's existence came to be used in a figurative way to depict the abode of the of the righteous, and so whether it's paradise or whether it is uh, Gehenna, each of them are being used. Each of them at one time had a literal thing that was true, but each are used in the New Testament in a figurative way to depict the situation of the righteous or the situation of the condemned. And Hades was just simply the all receiving part where all spirit all spirits go. Now, most of the passages. That, uh, that we find that are preached on today showing that, uh, uh, that people re that reject or are going to hell or are used on in our hellfire brimstone lessons, I believe when we look very carefully at the context, we find that in reality, they're looking at something that talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. And keep in mind, in saying that, I'm not saying that, that there's not an eternal separation and a judgment, because there is. I'm just saying that that uh, 
people have used passages out of context to teach something that really is not there. And that is that uh, these uh, passages that preachers sometimes have got up on and talked about the worm that isn't quenched and it, the fire that continues to burn and things of that nature, that if we look very carefully at those contexts, whether it is Second Peter or in First or Second Thessalonians uh, or in the Gospels like in Matthew 23, that in context you find yourself looking at the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the temple and the downfall of the Jewish nation and he is literally uh, talking about that and it was a literal physical thing that was going to happen. In fact, I believe personally all the passages that I have heard preached uh, dealing with their hellfire and brimstone in reality talked about judgment on the Jewish nation and the, and the Jewish people and the downfall of Jerusalem. All right, now I'd like to read tonight another from a source. This is Hastings' uh, Dictionary of the New Testament. And I'm reading on the, under, the, under the word hell, and it says the word most frequently so rendered uh, is the word Hades. In translating the two Greek words, Gehenna, and the very rare verbal term, Tartarus. And so he tells you in the very first paragraph that this word hell is used to translate Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Then he gives an example of how it's used. And like in James 3 and 6, when it's talking about the tongue and set it set on fire, the very fire of hell it, itself, it says where it is obviously used in the metaphorically for the evil power which is revealed in all forms of, of unlicensed, careless, and corrupt speech. In the figurative phrase, set on fire of Gehenna, the author of the epistle has clearly in mind the original idea of the name of, and associations of the Valley of Hinnon with its quenchless fire and its undying worm. And so he's saying that it's his understanding when it's used that in like James 3 and 6 of the tongue in reference to hell, that he's talking about that literal fire that in that day existed, that they're outside of Jerusalem in Gehenna, there was this quenchless fire that was going and going and going. And that he literally has that in mind and is not thinking in terms of some literal fire in the sky or anything of that nature when, when he utters that statement. Then he goes ahead and in the article talks about how that uh, the Greek word passed into Hebrew literature in the first place and goes back and quotes from uh, uh, pagan sources, from Greek sources, showing how they use these words. And then how that they use the word Hades to simply mean the unseen or the place where your spirit went after death. And this, by the way, was understood and believed by the Greeks. And that the Jews just simply picked that word up and brought it into their language. And the point is that when Jesus came on the scene and he used the term Gehenna and he used the term Hades and then uh, talked to the people and used it in his sermons and maybe, maybe a parable or a true story, whichever any, any way, way anybody wants it, he simply assumes the definition that they already believe. In other words, he never comes out, there's nobody in the New Testament that comes out and gives a definition of terms here. And the reason is that everybody there was already cognizant of that, and so there was no need for it. And Jesus just used it in the way that everybody already believed it and understand it. But in doing so, he gives his endorsement to the concepts that we just mentioned. Uh, in other words, that it is there was this real literal place, but then also it's used in this figurative sense, that he endorsed it fully. 
And then he goes ahead and point out here something we've studied before about even death. It said that death is regarded as separation from God. And so death conceived as a final word on human destiny becomes synonym for hopeless doom. And he points out that, you know, that no matter what anybody might think or speculate or anything, there's no question that the very word death itself simply means to separate and that involved in death was literal se separation from God. All right, now, what I'd like to do uh, a little bit of tonight is to go to the book of Acts where we have some sermons that are presented and look at uh, the type of sermons that were actually presented in order to convert people and get them to become a Christian. And what I think we'll find that as we look through them, and I believe you won't find any exceptions. We can over, I've only picked out three samples for tonight, but I don't believe you'll find any exceptions. I don't believe there is a single solitary time in all the preaching of the New Testament where somebody gets up and preaches a sermon and in the process of a sermon talks about an eternal burning in a, in a spiritual situation and uses that as a motivating force to try to get people to obey the gospel. I think when we look at the, the sermons, what we find out is that they present evidence trying to prove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and that he is the Messiah and then trying to get the people to respond. And they talk really just in terms of eternal life. And there was the understanding that they were all dead. In other words, the understanding is that you've already been judged. You're already in a body that's dying, but God has given you a chance to save your spirit. The body's dying, but God has given you a chance to save your spirit. And so I'm saying the talk was with the assumption that you're already dying and you know it but you've got the chance to save your spirit and have eternal life. And the, the, the conversation really says very, very little about what happens to that spirit that uh, does not obey the gospel. In fact, I don't know any place personally I can turn to in the New Testament and read anything about uh, uh, where the writer is telling you exactly what is happening to this spirit that dies outside the Lord. All of it centers on having eternal life and going into paradise, going to third heaven, going to be with the Lord, uh, going into a situation that's far better than this. And the emphasis is on um, you're already dying, you're in a decaying, dying world, and I'm offering you eternal life. And they became Christians based on the fact that they knew they were going to die, and here was the opportunity to have eternal life and have the remission of their sins. And I don't know of a single sermon or a single place I could go to and try and and show you how that somebody was uh, motivated to become a Christian by having a, a vivid picture painted to them uh, of fires and things of this nature that you were going to experience if you if you did not. And again, I'm not taking away from any judgment situation in that sense. I'm just saying that the motivating force was eternal life to a people that were already dying. Okay, let's come first over here to the second chapter. Of Acts, I should say, I said second chapter, second chapter of Acts. Okay, and uh, starting with uh, verse 14 in the sermon on the day of Pentecost, the first one where we have all of the conversions, uh, Peter stands up with the eleven, uh, raises his voice, begins to preach. And he quotes a prophecy in Joel 
And in quoting that prophecy, beginning in verse 17, he says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men see visions, and your old men see dreams. And he talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they see right there on Pentecost. Then, come on down to verse 20, and he says, The sun will turn to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on to preach a sermon. And he identifies Jesus as the man of God that performed miracles and confirmed himself. He quotes a prophecy uh, in 25 through 28 about his resurrection in the book of Psalms. Points out that Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of that. And then, uh, come on over to verse uh, 36. After his evidence given about Christ, he said, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord of Christ. All right, the people heard this. They're cut to the heart. They said, What shall we do? He tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the promise is to you and to all those who are far off. Okay, with many other words, he warned them and said, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted the message were baptized. The numbers added about 3,000. All right, and notice, they've become convinced concerning the deity of Jesus and his resurrection, and so they repent, they're baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and then he's told them to save yourself from this corrupt generation. And then, in that context, here's the part now that has been used traditionally to preach that, that he talked to them about hell at this point in time, and that's verse 20, where it says, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. All right, hold your place there and turn right over here to Matthew 24, verse 29. Matthew 24, and let's see, uh, Mark, would you read that, uh, uh, starting with, let's see, back up to uh, verse 27 uh, through uh, 29. As far as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, now notice how this is almost the same thing as you have over there. The sun will be darkened, the moon not give its light, the stars fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, now in uh, this passage over here in Acts 2, that uh, he's quoting from Joel 2, 28 through 32, about what was going to happen in the latter days. Well, Peter starts his sermon here in Acts, Acts 2 by telling them that in verse 17, look at verse 17 of chapter 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. In other words, those are the last days right there. It's the last days of the Jewish dispensation. And so Joel had prophesied that in the last days of the Jewish dispensation, before the new covenant, that God would pour out his spirit. There's two things, a blessing and judgment. The judgment was on the Jewish nation that rejected the Messiah. All right, this was going to happen before the coming of the Lord. Well, let's go back and look here again at Matthew 24, in that context you were reading. And verse 27, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. All right, this is the only coming that Jesus talked about. And then he comes on down to verse 30 
about the some other signs concerning his coming. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. And then the trumpet call in verse 31. And then we get on down to verse 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And then again, come over here at the end of verse 23. And uh, he, verse 37 on 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you the truth, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he leaves, and they ask him about the temple there, and he says, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. Okay, then they want to know, when will this happen? In verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay. When we get over here to Acts 2, this, keep in mind, when Jesus even uttered this about the destruction of Jerusalem and all, it was right at the end of his ministry. All right, he's crucified. Fifty days after that, we're at Pentecost. So all of this is within a very short, within just a couple of months period of time, you have Jesus' sermon concerning Jerusalem and the temple and all, and then here the apostles are. The Holy Spirit's been poured out just like Jesus said. They've crucified him. He's been raised, but he also promised he's going to come in judgment. So there in this context, they're preaching to the very Jews that crucified Christ, and they're now presenting him as the Savior. And they quote Joel about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and then the judgment situation. Well, they didn't have to explain that, the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to flood and before the glorious and the great day of the Lord and the, the, his coming. They all knew and related to that. And the apostles knew and understood. In fact, Jesus had taught them it had been within the last couple of months. They had heard it. They know Joel. They quote Joel and said what Jesus said is in perfect harmony with what Joel has said and now it's being fulfilled. And then when he says at the very end, to save yourself from this corrupt generation, that already Jesus had promised what would happen. And Peter knew, and the apostles knew, and they preached throughout their whole entire ministry that there was going to come a judgment upon the nation of Israel. And But those people that obeyed the gospel and came into Christ would believe what they said, and when the judgment started to come on Israel, they would get out of there and God would judge the city and everything in it. And so I'm saying a context here in Acts 2, one of the first that's used in the preaching of the New Testament to show them preaching a sermon at the same time talking about hell, in reality, in its context, is a quotation of an Old Testament prophecy in Joel, is explained by Jesus, and dealt with here and referred to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. And their saving themselves definitely was from the destruction and all of that place. Now, the same principle is true today. Just as Jerusalem was going to fall and it was going to be destroyed, and just as their bodies were going to be destroyed, whether through natural death or being murdered or what, and they could save themselves by obeying the gospel, have the remission of their sins, and then the hope of eternal life through that, the same thing is true today, that uh, you live in a body that is, is dying. You live in a world that is decaying, and we know that we're always going to have wars going on and problems and things in this life, and we also know eventually that this system's going to come to an end. I mean, at the, at the very best, it's wearing out and in the process of deteriorating, and it's going to come to an end. And so the same offering goes out today, that when you preach eternal life to somebody, 
based on the evidence for his resurrection, they presently are living in a dying body, in a dying world, uh, with all kinds of problems of sin itself, and you could literally say, save yourself from this corrupt and dying generation, and that they can step into Christ and have eternal life. And that's the vein that it's used, not in the sense of, of you can have remission of sins in Christ, and then spend a half hour talking to somebody about a, a literal fire in the sky that if you don't accept this, he's going to roast you right up there. I mean, if God wants to roast anybody, fine, that's his business. But at least they ought to leave the, the context alone and let it say what it's actually saying in the, in the context itself. I don't believe you quoted 16, did you? Acts 2, 16, right? Where Peter said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. No, I didn't. That's good to bring in. And, if you look at, yeah. and, he, and then he goes on and says, you know, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming, and so on. Um, right. And he's saying, this is, right here on the day of Pentecost, he's right. saying, this is what was spoken by Joel the prophet. And he goes ahead and quotes that whole thing from the Old Testament. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've been taught that that is saying to us, this is the last days now, and that's when all these things are happening now. But, you know, he was explaining to them what was happening that day. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's why he said, in the last days, they were in the last days. But we've been taught that that's today. Today is the last day. Yeah, and the, the last days of Judaism. Right. Yeah. Well, the the and it's it, it's very easy to do because what happens is somebody sits down and reads the Bible today as if it's being written to them today, okay. and and so then it's like, well, this is the last days, and part of the key, maybe the biggest key, I don't know. I I know I've over the years learned to appreciate it more and more. But at least a big part of the key to understanding the Bible is taking your mind back to the time that that was said and putting yourself in the place of those people. And when you go back to the first century, you are literally in the birth of Christianity when it's just a little bitty sect. But it's the last days of Judaism. Judaism is on its deathbed. And it's, and it's a decaying institution, and it's going to its death. And when it went to its death, it was going to be the biggest thing in the history of God's people when Judaism literally went to its death. In fact, it's interesting to me that uh, I started bringing it up tonight and didn't do it, left it uh, so I'll just leave it downstairs but uh, I've been reading this week The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah by Alfred Edersheim and he's, that's a standard and I've, in that realm I've been wanting to read it for years and finally getting around to reading it but anyway it was interesting to me in starting off uh, in setting, given the historical setting how much time that he spends on the meaning of Jerusalem and the temple to the Jewish people and how much centered and the fact that they're, they're, that's what separated them from everybody else and they just simply would not be a people with, without that, you know, and how important it was to them. But uh, I'm curious as to how he's going to handle that when we get over to the, you know, area on the destruction of Jerusalem and things like that. But I believe that is a key in looking at this and thinking, well, you know, Peter was saying that as a Jew at that time, uh, Christianity hadn't even been preached yet. And he was a Jew speaking to fellow Jews but it was the very last days of their system and the, the new one coming in. And also, judgment was going to be passed on their system. Okay, come over to the 10th chapter. Here is where um, Peter is uh, going to Cornelius, the first Gentile that's converted, and preaching to him. And again, here you have a sermon to a Gentile and I want to just look at it from the standpoint of noting that the entire message, all of it, in converting somebody 
revolved around proving the resurrection of Jesus and the people could have eternal life through him. And that was the thing that was talked about, beginning with verse, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 39. Uh, Nancy, would you read that 39 on down through about uh, verse 48? We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter was, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Okay, now notice here is a sermon not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And all of the emphasis is on remission of sins and eternal life in Christ. And he identifies himself and the other apostles as witnesses of this thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there poured out as an evidence and a proof to the uh, Jew that the Gentile was to receive the gospel. The people were told to repent, to be baptized. And everything just simply centered on, and then it just mentioned that he is the judge of the living and the dead. But so far as any enumeration or going into a place of a fire or anything of that nature, it just simply is not there. All right, now, what is true here is true with every single solitary sermon that we have in the New Testament, that, it, that all emphasis in teaching was to prove to people that Jesus was literally who he claimed to be, that he was been raised from the dead, that you can literally prove that by examining the facts and that he is a sin offering and that you can have eternal life in the remission of sins. And there's just simply the assumption and sometimes stated on the part of the speaker that everybody's died. In other words, you've already been judged. Uh, remember what John said about him, that he did not come, or John, I should say, quotes Jesus, he did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Though we have been judged, death passed unto all men, beginning with the sin of Adam, and then all have sinned, Paul said in Romans 5 and verse 12. And so you and I have been judged in the body, and the body is going to die, and this world we're in is, is going to deteriorate and go by the wayside. And in Christianity, we simply have the offering to save our spirits and to live eternally. And to the best that I can ascertain, and from the passages that I look at, there just simply isn't much there to put your hands on and say, here are some passages uh, over here that are being preached on by the apostles that tell us what's going to happen throughout all eternity to these spirits that are outside of Christ. It's just mentioned they're, they're separated from God. They don't, have eternal, they don't have eternal life. They're not with him. Uh, what God's going to do or their condition just simply is not brought out in those, in those situations. And when somebody does deal with it, uh, just like in Acts 2 where they come up with their hellfire and brimstone and whatnot, uh, when I look at it, I see them taking a passage that I believe in context applied to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of that nation. Okay, come over to chapter uh, 13.
Okay, beginning with verse 13, uh, Paul uh, comes from Paphos and sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. And then it says from Perga there, they went on to the city of Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Okay, now Paul begins to preach to them. And he goes back into their history and tells them of all these things that they're familiar with in their own history. In verse 23, from this man's descendant, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. He identifies him as the Savior that they've looked forward to, deals with John the Baptist, and then verse 26, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And then he continues on, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. For many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee. They are now his witnesses to our people. And now we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it's written in the second psalm. And then he quotes the psalms concerning Christ. And then continuing right on down, verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And then he says, take care that this doesn't happen. Verse 41, look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you will never believe, even if someone told you. Okay, Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The people invited them to speak further about these things the next Sabbath. Okay, the congregation is dismissed. It mentions that many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul. The next Sabbath they come together. Jews get mad, verse 44, verse 45, because of the crowds. Paul and Barnabas, in verse 46, answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you. Goes ahead to mention that he will now go to the Gentiles with this. Verse 50, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas expelled them uh, expelled them from their region. They shook the dust to their feet in protest against them, went to Iconium. Okay, they continue on. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 14, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers, so that Paul uh, he continues on with the preaching there. Uh, then we come on down to verse 19, uh, the same chapter. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. And then in verse 21, they go down to Syria, and they preach the good news there. All right. Suffice it to say, you can follow this all the way through, and you find that each and every time they go in, and they are preaching what they call good news, salvation in Christ. And yet constantly, without exception, every place they go, the Jews that reject follow them in and persecute them and make life miserable and attempt to take their life. And they are the persecuting force. What you also find is leaving this and coming into the letters, the statements by the apostles that God was going to judge the Jews. Then we get into passages like in uh, 2 Peter 3, another passage that has been used of, of hell, and also in 1 Thessalonians, the 4th cha chapter, or 2 Thessalonians, 
passages that are used of him coming back and passing judgment and all, and then statements that people use relative to hell itself. And yet when we look at those contexts, we find that what we have, putting the letters and the uh, book of Acts all together, is the apostles preaching the good news of salvation to people who are already dead, who are already in a dying generation, trying to persuade these Jews to save themselves from that crooked generation, telling them that the city was going to be destroyed, the temple was going to be destroyed, that God was going to pass judgment. All the time the Jews continued to persecute them, and all the time they continued to remind the people that God was going to judge that city and it's going to be destroyed. But what they're actually preaching to the people and converting them on was the belief in the resurrection of Jesus and the good news that was offered there, and the people knew that they were responding to eternal life. So again, I'm saying that the message, so far as what they were receiving, was a message that offered their spirits eternal life. And all emphasis and all proof was on that. There simply is nothing there that I can find telling them, number one, what was going to be the condition of this spirit that is not in Christ. I mean, so far as what was actually going to literally happen to it. But the same is true of the of eternal life. In other words, you just simply know you have eternal life, and you know it's referred to as paradise, and you know it's referred to in terms of streets of gold and things of this nature in the third heaven. But as to telling you exactly what you're going to be doing and describing it to you in words that you can perfectly and concretely relate to, you just simply don't have it. You can What you can gather out of all of it when you try to understand it is that one is the worst possible thing because it's separation from God. The other is the best possible and even superior to what we have here because it's eternal life with God. But really that any of the words at all, whether it's streets of gold or whether it's hellfire and brimstone, all of this is figurative language simply trying to describe to us how good one is and how bad the other is. And so far as trying to convert people, there is no instance in the book of Acts where somebody got up and preached a sermon about a literal fire in the sky in order to try to motivate somebody to respond to the gospel itself. And there's no place in the letters where anybody got up and warned them about a literal fire in the sky in order to try to get them to respond in, in some way. I can remember as a, in my young years when I used to hear the preaching that dealt with these matters. And, and although, you know, I just, of course, I didn't back then that I was not studied in Greek or haven't, hadn't read the various interlinearies and a lot of things on it. And so I just read the New Testament. When I saw hell, it was hell. And I didn't know anything about Hades and Tardivus and, and Gehenna. It was just a hell. But I can remember even then that it, there were several things that bothered me. And one is that what glory could it be to God if the only reason I'm going to embrace him is because I don't want to be roasted eternally. It'd be just like when you think of it, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. <clears throat> Who would want a mate that was going to marry you because somebody said, I'm going to roast you forever unless you marry that person? Or, I'm going to, or unless you marry that person, we talk about shotgun weddings. Who wants this person? That the only reason he's going to marry you is because somebody's holding a shotgun at his head. And so I'm saying that, that, that all that I've said is not to take away from the eternal destiny of, of those people that die outside the Lord or whatever, however awful it is. It's just that that is not used as the motivating force. It's just there as a natural consequence. You're, you're in a dying body. Look at your situation. The world is dying. It's in sin. 
you can escape it and have eternal life. And all the emphasis is placed on getting the remission of your sins and having eternal life. And it's like the, the motivating factor should be your, your appreciation for the love and the sacrifice and all that is revealed in, in Christ. And he wants you to repent because you're sorry for your sins, a godly sorrow, work for the repentance unto life, and that you love God for what he's done for you, and you want to be a Christian because you want to live for him forever. And that's the motivating force that comes from the teaching. The other's there. It's there. It's just a natural consequence that it's already there, and you're in a body that's dying and in a society that's dying right now. I think we've heard a lot of fear of God. That always bothers me. I always wonder, why should I be afraid of God in, in that sense? Because God is love. And we never really heard the preaching of God being love and the goodness of God. We always heard what we were supposed to fear and that we should, you know, to follow Christ because of all the fear of him and not so much because of the love. Yeah. And John said, like, perfect love casteth out fear. That actually, the uh, when you read of, like, the beginning of wisdom, for example, is the fear of God that's used. The, the word fear by itself is not really the best rendering of the word because, at least to, our, to the English mind, the, a better rendering would be reverence and respect and awe. Now, there's a sense in which fear is a part of it. Fear in the sense that, that uh, God is true to his word and whatever he said, he'll do. In other words, that, that the person that ought to fear God is the person that has not responded to him. That he needs to fear because God is going to do just exactly what he said. But for the person that has reached the point where he loves God and, and, and sees those things, there should be no fear there. And that's what John is saying, that perfect love casts out fear. The Christian should not fear the judgment. The one that he loves and the one that he knows loves him so much that he died for him is the one that is judged. And so there should be no fear of the judgment itself. And I think that's, uh, even from the standpoint of teaching the young, that that is so much healthier in every way mentally that to, to build a relationship that is based on love and respect and awe rather than one that uh, the only reason you're good is because you're going to get zapped as you, if you don't do. I would rather leave it uh, in what I believe is taught that you get zapped, not by cruel God, you're getting zapped because that way is wrong and it being, that's a natural consequence of a wrong way. And all the time you're being zapped and by doing wrong, it's, break, it's really breaking God's heart. In other words, that it, it's, not a, it's not a father up there looking for an opportunity to roast somebody. It's a father that is looking at people who are roasting their se themselves. And he's trying to get them to step into eternal life and, and out of that situation. Similar with the Bible, too, as far as the law is concerned. When you teach kids, um, it's better to teach them that these laws come from a loving Heavenly Father, that he, he knows how you operate best and what's best for you and what will make you happy, and he's given you those rules for that reason, not just a bunch of no's to take all from you know, uh, Mm -hmm. Is there, uh, I was looking for another, uh, is there another passage that you're aware of that you'd like to look at in that uh, context? I think because that uh, we've dealt with First and Second Thessalonians in the entire 
context and everything like that. And uh, even there, when he talks about punishing those that do not know God, do not obey the gospel, they will be punished. And then he says, uh, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And uh, so you have you, you look at this, and when he says, now I'm reading in 2 Thessalonians 1, and beginning with verse uh, 9, then you ask yourself the question, what is everlasting destruction? They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's where you get into the, date, the debate then of this spirit, uh, the individual that go, literally goes to his the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, the Jehovah's Witness group, uh, the Worldwide Church of God, uh, other individuals, they believe that based on this statement like everlasting destruction, that that person just simply ceases to be. In other words, that once the judgment does take place and all that, then they cease to be. And then others, uh, based on the statement the uh, where the worm is not quenched and the everlasting fire and everything like that. But the problem with using that as a basis for believing the continuation of that spirit and all is that that term is used relative to the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. It was also used relative to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the word itself uh, comes from a, a word that means the period under consideration. Whatever that period is, is determined by the context. And so that the to do it everlastingly or forever by the word that's being used would have meant for however long is intended. In other words, however long it takes for the fire to burn it up, you know, like the city or whatever it may be. But there would be the possibility if that's what's intended by the context. And so, at least to my judgment, I'm at the point where I just refuse to be dogmatic on it. And they get all hot under the collar sometimes when they argue it. I'm not interested in proving one way or the other. And there's a sense in which it really doesn't really mean anything to me that... Uh, that whether that spirit is just simply destroyed or whether it goes on into continuous some sort of separated condition from God that's that's uh, terrible and described in terrible ways neither one was appealing to me and I don't know which one sounds the worst to, to know that uh, that I'm just going to be annihilated or to know that I'm going to continue on in a tormented state that neither one is is actually appealing and I think uh, at this stage, since God hasn't seen fit to reveal any more about it, the safest thing to do is just simply leave those spirits in the hands of God. And, and to my judgment, spend our time recognizing that everybody out here is dying. And God offers eternal life in Christ. And I believe as Christians, we ought to be talking about the love of God is displayed in Christ, all that he's done for us, not picturing God as a cruel father that's wanting to roast you, He's a, he's a just God, and because of his justice, we've already brought death on ourselves. We've already separated, and we've already suffered all kinds of consequences of our sin, and there may be all kinds of other things out there, but the point is that God doesn't want any of that. It's like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Uh, we're in that situation of our own choosing, and the God that is pictured to us is a loving God that loved us so much that he gave his own son to die for our sins, and, and the event was so impressive that Paul in, in Romans 
made the statement uh, relative to Christians that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit that is given to you. And then he goes on to tell how this happens. He says that somebody might die for a righteous man or peradventure for a good man. But while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And so Paul's statement is that this was this knowledge of God's love is, is so impressive that when fully comprehended by your mind, the end result ought to be the love of God shed abroad in your heart. And to my mind, that is completely different than become a Christian, because if you don't, you're going to be roasted forever. And so to keep from being roasted forever, I'm going to become a, become a Christian. I also believe that when it comes to, to serving God and doing the things that we need to do, I think the greatest motivator is, is love. I believe that uh, that kind of scare tactic will cause obedience from a legalistic standpoint. It'll cause you to do just exactly what you have to do because you're scared of what's going to happen. But the kind of thing that's going to motivate you to sacrifice and go beyond any specific in order to make demands on yourself and on your money and on your time and on your talent and for other people and, and, and for God, I just believe that kind of sacrifice is only motivated because of love and, and, and nothing else. You know, uh, the way God dealt with his people in, when, back in Israel's day was when they got so bad, well, he would allow them to go into captivity and separate himself from them for a period of hundreds of years sometimes. And in that sense, I think today he's saying for us, this separation is going to be eternal separation. Yeah. I think that you can see how bad it was for them when he was separating them. Right. I think it's good, Jack, when he separated them. He separated them until that entire generation died right. out. And then through their children, he would bring them back. And it always the, the punishment was the separation. And the thing of it is, is that when they were separated from God, all those negative things happened. I thought uh, one illustration I read of, uh, that I don't remember all the particulars, but it was in a, a little brochure by the Jehovah's Witness, and I thought it was very good. And they compared it, you know, being alive as opposed to being dead that uh, to a fan that's plugged into the electricity and it's going through a blast and you unplug it and it continues to go, but it's separated from its source. And so it gradually winds down and dies and that it needs plugged into its source in the same way that God has got a life that's been given and something that started in our solar system and galaxy and everything but separated from him that the whole thing will wind down and, and die. And the same with the with the spirit itself, separated from God that he could have no no life. You know, Paul and in all the studies we've we've had up here it's it's obvious that uh, that there's a lot of misunderstanding today and a lot of there's been a lot of misinterpretations that have just been propagated continually from generation to generation and if you look at Jesus's ministry it looks like the same thing was was going on then the Jews had a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings that he tried to show them what where they were wrong and he, well he talked about a spiritual kingdom and they kept they were looking for a physical kingdom and Christians today are making that same mistake. They're looking for a physical kingdom, and, and it's not that at all. How, why is it so easy 
for all these mis misinterpretations to be continually put forth and believed and why I don't it seems like that it, that it ought to be easier to understand or something I, I don't know what I'm trying well, to ask really one thing though that uh, Mark that I think that uh, I don't I believe that it's difficult only in the sense that you're dealing with a lot of material and that you have to read and study the material and you think of what Jesus said like Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open. Ask and you shall receive. And he spent three and a half years teaching those apostles and then said, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it. That we are a very, we're made in the image of God and we are very intelligent and we're very complicated. And to give something in such a way that you could just understand it like that there could be no depth to it. I mean, okay. uh, let's look at mathematics. Everybody that's normal can learn to do basic uh, adding and subtracting and dividing and multiplying computation in a reasonable amount of time. But then you get into algebra and trig and geometry and, and calculus and all, and there there's a lot more effort that's required and a whole lot more study and a whole lot more thought. But... If you didn't get into that realm, nobody's going to build any bridges or do all these things that we do. So the average person really goes through life and doesn't need anything but the computation. But, the, but, the, but it's with the other that we do these fantastic things. I believe the essentials to a man's salvation are very easy to understand. And the, and the evidence can be grasped in a way. I mean, the, the various types of evidences now can be grasped and understood and there, first of all, is that you're made an image of God, and there's that inner identification with those principles of right and wrong that you just find yourself inwardly saying, well, hey, even though this steps on my toes, I can see that it's right. That's always been my experience in, read, in reading the Bible. And so that's there. And, and you identify with that beautiful life of Christ, and you identify with the evidences and have the ability to evaluate it. And the fact that you, you already know uh, that you're dying, and therefore eternal life is appealing, and so the whole thing of a creator supplying a way out for you and loving you and, and, and taking sins upon himself, now, there's a sense in which that's extremely logical because you know how you feel towards your own children and, and things of this nature. So I'm saying the very basis of the good news of salvation in Jesus and eternal life and all is really very easy to understand and, and, and very easy to convey. But then... After we become a Christian, you might live another 50 or 60 years or however long, and there is the in-depth material to study and meditate on and come to a greater understanding all the time. And just like those 3,000 people that were baptized on Pentecost, they didn't understand all kinds of things they did not understand. And then for the rest of their lives, more and more information is given to them. Well, then another thing I think that, that makes information harder to understand is that the very fact that we are separated from God in our sins, and we separated ourselves. We've been brought up in a world of sin. We've been taught all kinds of lies and biases and things of this nature, and that's part of our thinking. And so we have to somehow always fight to get out of all of these biases and untruths and just be honest with the truth. And just like, remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, and he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus in uh, Luke uh, 24 and 25 through 
27, he said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had said. And then he said, beginning with Moses, he began to explain these things to them. But the point is, he called them fools for refusing to believe all that was there. The, the religious leaders of that day had taught them a lot of things that they believed that were not so. And those things caused them to be slow to believe just exactly what the prophets had said. And so as a result, they had misunderstandings of those things. That if I understand Jesus right, he was telling them, if you just simply read the scriptures and spent your time there and believed it, now you wouldn't have any problem. Your problem is that of all the traditions that you've been taught, and then you're judging and things about, by that. Remember their understanding even of the resurrection. They said, well, what happens this man has had so many, or this woman's had so many husbands, which one's going to have her? And then he says, you don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he went along to tell them, you know, their misunderstanding in that realm. Well, I think in the same way today, we all have been taught various things uh, that are wrong. Some of us more than others. But yet we still have the responsibility to seek and to study. Now, let's think about the statement that you made about it seemingly is difficult and all. Think of all the people you know that go to church where you go to church. And I think about all, and, and any place else you've ever gone to church. And I think about all the people I know that have gone to church. How many of those people are really diligent students of the Bible? Okay? And, and I don't mean going to going and listen to testimonies or the preacher get up and preach and all. Yeah. How many of them begin in Genesis, read to Revelation, go back to Genesis, go to Revelation, and they are honestly trying to figure out what it says? And how many of them that they never dream of... Uh, say, enter into a lot of letter writing without getting a Webster's Dictionary. You know, we, we get all our children in Webster's Dictionary. But how many of the people that, uh, that uh, say they believe the Bible have a Greek Dictionary or a Hebrew Dictionary? Or, uh, or we get them, we get them uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica or World Book or something like that. But how many of us get uh, Bible encyclopedias where, the, where scholars have studied the Bible? And yet all of these things that are there in the secular world are there in the religious world, too. We've got great biblical encyclopedias. Uh, we've got great dictionaries where, where scholars have poured their entire life into those things. In fact, there is no scholarship in all the secular world, I don't believe, that, that, that in any sense surpasses, maybe doesn't even come up to the kind of scholarship that has gone into the Bible down, down through the years by very dedicated in, individuals. And so I'm saying that information is out there, and it's available, and it's always been there. And I believe that any student of normal intelligence who studies it with the idea, I just want the truth, I believe he's going to go beyond those basics. And he's going to find out all kinds of things. The question is, how many are going to go and study it? Uh, that I know when I look at uh, uh, the church, I would say that the majority of people that profess to be Christians right now have never read the complete Bible. I, I'm not saying study it. They've never read the complete Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The majority of, of Christians do not even study the Old Testament. They, they read Genesis. They read the Psalms, Proverbs. They read some of the stories in the history about David. The vast majority have never studied Isaiah. And he's the messianic prophet of the Old Testament. And, and all of this figurative language that we talk about in the New Testament that they take in a literal way, there is no way that a person can read the prophets and I see that, because I know that's when I first began to see these things, is when I read the prophets, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, he's uh, he's talking about Babylon, he's talking about Assyria, and he's talking about Egypt, 
and he's using the same terminology that the apostles talk about hell, you know. Well, that's that's interesting, you know, because maybe there's a possibility they're talking about something else. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, it, it's, I think the information is there. If you'll compare this, though, uh, for, let's forget about the Bible and go to other things that require information. When it comes to uh, voting for president, how many people are really going to read the platform of each party, listen carefully to the platform of each party, uh, evaluate exactly what they're saying and whatnot, and, and the logic behind it and everything before they vote on, on whoever they're, they're going to vote for. And I have to say not, not a whole lot of people really do that. Uh, we Right here in Grundy County, every 99% of the people in the county would tell you they believe that uh, abortion is wrong. They believe that homosexuality is shameful and that it's a uh, uh, sin, and they would give you some very fine moral statements. Go right out and vote for a man in a party that that they're in, who believes in abortion on demand, who uh, believes in uh, that homosexuality is just an alternate uh, alternative lifestyle, who believes that pornography ought to be left alone and things of this nature, who would believe all kinds of things uh, that they do not, but yet in that particular party, and they wouldn't even take the time to read and, and be honest with what he actually believes as, as an individual. So I'm saying that I don't think that lack of study is limited just to the Bible. I think it goes into, uh, look at all the information that's available for us health-wise, and how many people avail themselves, you know, of, of the actual information that's there. Well, we've been brought up what we think anyway, that we don't have to study it because the, the preacher's supposed to tell it all to right. us anyway, and I feel like a good majority of them don't really study it because they go with what they were taught. They you go know? with what they were taught? Or what their church teaches because sure. they can't teach anything else. When you're in a denomination, it is very difficult to be an individual student. Yeah. It, uh, it is. I know that uh, the years that I preached in the, as I was recognized as a Church of Christ minister, when I was young and just started out, uh, they thought I was great. I got all kinds of compliments. People talked about all the good work that we were doing and everything like that. Uh, I held meetings. I spoke on various things. Uh, man, uh, it was just all kinds of things that was there. I was introduced as as this very knowledgeable, up-and-coming young man and things like that. But I kept studying. And the more I studied, the more I came to believe that some of the things that I had been taught were wrong. And, and so I just began to teach it in the Bible class, and right away some of the old guard was shocked. Now, wait a minute, are you, do you really, do you believe there's saved people in the Baptist church? You know, and, and do you believe that there's saved people in the denominations out there? And, and they're a little bit shocked, like one preacher got walked out when I said, yes, you know, I believe there's saved people. I don't think there's, uh, that, that, and I don't believe that, that the Church of Christ of the Bible is the Church of Christ you find in the Yellow Pages. You know, you're, you're talking about two, two different things. So, but I'm saying that uh, that was very shocking, and it got uh, all kinds of uh, negative things coming our direction, and, and it really became an impossible situation. Uh, I, you know, I could not. The only way I could have continued preaching on a full-time basis was to shut up and to bend and at least not come out. Now, what happens, a lot of ministers that study some of these things out and see it, they see it, and they don't speak out. 
And uh, that's and what is true is true within all the groups. They have their differences, and they just don't speak out. And the way they rationalize in their mind is, well, I'm doing a lot of good if I speak out, and uh, and then I put myself in a situation where I can't preach full time or anything like that. I can't do I can't do near as much good. And so they they go along with things that they disagree with simply because of whatever good you know that they think they're good. But it is it's hard. And another thing when you study that. I don't know of anything I've ever come to see different that I was just all of a sudden I was positive that this is wrong and this is right. There was always that period of time where I hit a gray area and I didn't know which one was right or wrong. It's just I had doubt in my mind. And, and, and that doubt may be there and I might go a year or so or two years and I'm just not sure one way or the other. So I just quit being dogmatic over here. And then you begin to express your doubts to others. Well, what happens... Here you are, you haven't really studied enough to have it figured out and all, and you begin to express these doubts. Well, you get shot down. And you don't really have the ammunition to prove this yet. It's just that you've got doubt about this. And so you're warned that, uh, you know, that, uh, in fact, one man visited me, and he says that, uh, uh, what was it? This was, I was thinking of Otto over here years back, and he let me know how much of a note they owed and that, uh, the, the people that contributed quite a bit were concerned about the things <laughs> that I said, you know. And I don't remember his exact words, but it was that kind of thing that you're going to run off some big contributors, and we've got this note, you know, that we that we owe something something of that nature. But uh, it it happens in the Catholic Church, and I think it happens. I think it happens in the holiness. I, there's nobody going to convince me that a lot of those preachers along the line do not begin to question and have doubt. But if they was to voice those, that doubt, they would be shot down just like that. And so they just tend to, to keep the doubts within. And and so the, the person that's being supported in the denomination is sometimes the worst guy to try and study and, and, and figure out truth. Uh, remember in the days of Jesus, it said many of the rulers believed him, believed in him, but they would not confess him for fear of the Jews because they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue in that matter. And then I think with people in various denominations, all of us want fellowship, and all of us want to be like. And and here you are in a situation, uh, maybe it's a Baptist church, maybe it's a church of Christ, maybe it's a church of God, and you love the people there, and, and you enjoy worshiping and everything, but there are these certain points that you disagree with. Well, you'd like to come out with it, but you know as soon as you do, that no longer are you one of them. Okay, now they begin to kind of look at you with suspicion. If you're teaching a class, they don't want you there. If you're, they're not going to, they they're not going to want you to be a deacon. They're not going to want you to be an elder. They're not going to want you in any position, and 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 you're just not one of the group. Or you can just shut up and have your reservations and believe those things yourself, and be fully accepted as part of the group. And everybody likes you, and they shake your hand, and they pat you on the back, and the preacher thinks you're great, and everything like that. And so. I think a lot of times people just simply hold back rather than be shot down. Sounds like he's done that. Well, it looks like that the, the organized church is actually being a, a hindrance to the, the propagation of truth. Because anytime anybody, well, you know, take you for an example, when you come out on something, instead of looking at it and studying it, what they do is they want to suppress it and put it, put it out. The organist, the truth is always moved, though, by those people, maybe within the organization, though, who would step out. Martin Luther uh, was a Catholic monk, 
and a devout Catholic. And he kept studying and he kept looking. And he came to the conclusion that what he saw in the New Testament and what he saw in the Catholic Church was just not the same. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the sale of indulgence, where you could buy the right to commit a sin in the, in the Catholic Church. And so he nailed his 95-point thesis on the door of the bishop over him. And it was what it was, it was 95 discrepancies between the Catholic Church and what he found in the Bible. Well, he was excommunicated. But when he, when he took that bold stand, he found there was others. He would have never been successful had there not been thousands of others just like him. And so they began now to stand they, but behind him. And then he went ahead and began to propagate a great truth and started the Reformation movement. All right, uh, John Wesley was a priest in the Church of England. And he was turned off personally by the formalism and the ritualistic lives that they lived. He believed that life of the that the Christian life ought to be more holy and more spontaneous and it ought to be full of more prayer and things of this nature. So he started little groups within that of other people who felt the same way. All right, that group eventually became the Methodist Church. But they started, again, as part of an organization that they came out of in fighting those things. Well, each of these, it's interesting that most of these denominations that started, started from within an organization themselves. And they were fighting the organization, and they went out with all good intention. And then over a period of time, they became an organization themselves and turned right around and did the same thing. The, the restoration movement that led to the formation of the Christian churches and the churches of Christ and the disciples of Christ, where people, every one of those people were coming out of the Presbyterian church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, and they were fighting human creeds. That's what they were fighting. They, 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 didn't, they weren't in perfect agreement on every doctrine of the Bible, but what they were saying is that we're never going to be unified as long as we have these creeds that you have to give allegiance to. And they said, let's throw our creeds away and go back to the Bible and speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. So you had people by the thousands leaving denominations refusing to be called anything but Christians. What happens? They have their differences and all. Over a period of time, they began to formalize and make statements on what they believe. They began to debate their differences. Hard feelings take place. And the next thing you know, one denominates themselves Church of Christ, the other denominates themselves Christian Church, a third group denominates themselves Disciples of Christ, and they begin the process of becoming the very thing they condemn. And that is a, a denomination that will not fellowship people who differ with them on some of these particular points. But but yet they started, and so I'm saying that it just it's an ongoing process, and I believe it'll always be that way. I believe that there will always be people coming out of the Holiness Church coming out of any established group who, who do study those individuals and there will always be going on. And the shortcoming is in the second and third generation who didn't get there by studying but was born into it. And then they have a tendency to sit there and just hold on. you know. And, and a lot of things like, for example, that uh, Alexander Campbell is looked at as the father of the, the movement that led to the Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement. Uh, I'd be in perfect fellowship with Alexander Campbell, and I, I get a kick out of it when, when the Church of Christ condemns me because the man that they look to as being so important in the Restoration Movement believed exactly what I believe when it comes to the fellowship and all, and if he were alive today, would not be welcome in their midst. Sort of like John Wesley. If John Wesley were alive today, he could not be in the United Methodist Church. He couldn't. He's got too much respect for the Bible. There's just no way that he would be in the United Methodist Church. And you take a, a Jimmy Swaggart, the initial people who started the Assemblies of God and the Pentecostal, all of those were people 
that were actually pursuing holiness in life and spirituality and godliness, and they believed that there was too much worldliness within. That was how the initial movement got started. They, they, the emphasis was on spirituality. Jimmy Swaggart, with his uh, Lincoln Continental and $2.5 million house and Rolex watch, would have been totally out of place in that group. They wouldn't even, he wanted, wanted no part of them, and they wouldn't have wanted any part of him, but they, they've come that way. But I'm saying the original intention of the people was good. You know, I think part of it, maybe too, like Mark was saying, I think that there has been no um, uh, no emphasis put on obtaining knowledge. It's like, you know, we bring our kids up and, you know, they go to school and they have science and they have to study and they study eight years, you know, or whatever. And then on through high school or college, they don't have where they go. And we do the same thing with mathematics, English, whatever it is. But with the scriptures, it's just like, our forefathers didn't hand it to us, and we don't. We we were just going along with what they do, and we don't put the real emphasis that we should and how important right. it is. And we could master that book just as easy or easier than you could a chemistry book or whatever yeah. it might be. You just think that uh, that uh, take American history. In American history, all you're talking about is, is a couple hundred years. You take a full a child takes a full year of it in the eighth grade, where he studies it one hour a day for a full year. Goes to high school in his junior year, takes a full year of it, returns subject one hour every day, takes all kinds of tests, reads extra books, takes notes, reads the chapter, answers questions at the end of the chapter. If he goes to college, he takes another full year of American history where he sits down and takes notes as fast as he can write, memorizes all kinds of details, reads extra books. If he majors in history, then man, he does all kinds of research and everything. Okay? Compare that with the way the average person gets the Bible by he casually goes to a Sunday school class. By the time you've had the songs and the prayer and everything like that, you're lucky if the class is 30 or 35 minutes long. It's a very casual type thing. Uh, he, he hears preaching that is whatever length that contains some personal testimony and, and maybe, a, maybe involves one of the stories of Jesus or something like that. But nowhere along the line does he approach the Bible in the way that he approaches that history book or the chemistry book or the biology. And I, I'm saying that the average person would flunk right. history and biology and chemistry if he went at it the way he goes at the Bible. And then, you know, it's so amazing because, you know, here, especially with Christians, you know, they believe that that's, that has the ability to give you eternal life and it has the way, you know, that's the best way for you to live. And yet, you know, Christians as a whole don't put the emphasis on studying and mastering that, you know, their children doing that and all. But there is, there are those that do, just like look at your self, and you've got to figure that everybody, the people where you're at have as much going for them as you do and all like that, that look at the distance you drive, the effort you're, the books that you get, the effort that you're putting forth, and uh, uh, that there's no doubt in my mind that if uh, you was to read something next week that would prove to you that something I'm teaching is wrong or whatever like that, that you would reject it that quick and, and go right with the evidence and would confront me with it. And, and I really believe you'd be that way anywhere. Well, that, I'm saying that is a healthy, good attitude. Uh, same thing with Jack. When they, when they talk about uh, people can't see things, the, they'll tell me that, well, you've got to remember, they've been brought up in the Church of Christ and all like this. Jack was brought up in the Church of Christ and raised in the Church of Christ. I was brought up in the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so when they're telling me that, hey, you got to keep in mind that he's been brought up that way and everything, I'm thinking, tell me, my grandfather, who's 96 years of age, has been in the Church of Christ for 70-something years. My mother, who's 76 years of age, has been in it all her adult life. 
And I was baptized and had, uh, at uh, 18 years of age, and I'm 48 now, so that means 30 years that my background was there. But that still, I'm saying, and so it, it really doesn't bother me to be plain with them from the standpoint that I think that your tie into whatever you're in is no stronger than my tie was into what I was in, and I was preaching for it full time. And I don't know, I don't even know what quality it takes to get people to stand out and to seek, and others don't. I just don't, uh, that's an interesting thing about human nature. It's like uh, when you look at the government workers, and some of these people waste, and they cheat, and they connive, and, and then here's these selected individuals that blow the whistle on them, and they get real disturbed and write articles because it bothers them that that's going on. Well, what's the difference in those two minds? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. But I think Jesus maybe hit on it in his parable where he spoke of sowing the word in different types of heart, and he spoke of an honest and a good heart. And I think that every individual who's honest and wants truth will wind up with it. And I think, I think he has the, uh, the Bible makes it clear that he has God's providential care and will have every opportunity for that. You know, I think we've all probably thought along the same lines at, at one time or another that you were expressing, Mark. I know even with Jesus proving that he was the Messiah, I know I've often thought, and I know Paul's even mentioned it in his sermon sometimes, that, you know, you think, well, why didn't in the Old Testament they just have a list? of things that the Messiah would do, you know, he would do this and this and this, and then over here in the New Testament, have a list where he fulfilled them, yeah. you know, but like he said, had that been the case, so some of it I'm sure has to do with the wisdom of God, had that been the case, then people could say, well, he just looked at it like a grocery list, and they set aside to fulfill oh, these things, you know, but when it's, you know, it's just fulfilled Oh, the complexity is where the beauty comes in and the evidence. Yeah. If the prophecies were laid down one to a hundred, and over here he fulfilled them one to a hundred, you wouldn't have fulfillment of prophecy. They wouldn't prove anything. They would say, well, anybody could look at the list and try to fulfill it. Now, the, the interesting thing about those prophecies is the context that they was uttered, the lack of understanding that so many people had in them, the paradoxes that were involved in so many of them, and the fact that, that even his enemies were involved in the fulfillment of many of them. And so the very complexity of the whole situation is what gives it its impact. Sister, I've got pizza in there. Oh, okay. Well, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, uh, too, though, you know, another interesting thing to me that has always been, Mark, just like I read that thing on hell in here, I've got a number of dictionaries and encyclopedias. Anyway, every one of them, every one of them, will, you look up hell, and it'll, it'll mention that the King James gives an unfortunate rendering of it. It'll tell you the three Greek words. It'll give it, in other words, I'm saying that scholarship really is remarkable in its unity. We often talk about the diversity, but in uh, a good example that I've used before when we talk, Adam Clark lived and died a Methodist you will find very, very few Church of Christ preachers who do not have an Adam Clark set of commentaries. They, when I became a Christian and, uh, and I began studying and I asked preachers to refer me to the good books and all, the first set of commentaries that I was referred to was Adam Clark. In other words, that they recognize his scholarship. And uh, it's interesting that, uh, that on so many of these things, just like you said yourself when you checked out like in Matthew 24 and all like that, that it's interesting in looking at it that how much of that that they see alike, you know, with no, no problem. Well, 
Well, that's another thing that amazes me. With all this material available here, and you go in and you hear a man preaching, and and it's obvious that if, if he had studied the subject at all, yeah. he would have come up and know that he was wrong on some of it. If he would, but he's not. Before he, he preached the Bible it. doctrine of hell, if he'd go to a few dictionaries and encyclopedias and run the reference on the Word and look at it in the Old Testament, right, he's going to see some different things there. I guess that's what just just burns. I mean, if I get mad about anything, that's what I've, I've what's happened to me in the past is I look and see that I've had people up there preaching and teaching me that I could have spent a week of hard study and and been on a par or past them. Yeah. It's and how have you seen yeah. sermon books? Okay, that, no, I, I've stayed away from those. Okay, well, what I'm saying is that uh, I may have mentioned you once before. When I was going to years back, when I had uh, I just got out of the Marine Corps, worked for a year and a half in D.C., and then I just kept getting more and more involved. And I decided I wanted to preach full time, so I went back to college. And one of my majors, I was majoring in Bible, and and I was also taking speech courses and everything. And of course that uh, that. You know, I welcome any opportunity to speak and everything because I was developing. And so I started out preaching at just small country churches, and I'd just preach once a month. And the only way I'd preach again is if I was a different place and I use that same lesson. Well, after I had been doing this for a number of months, I had several of them ask me if I would start to work with them on a regular basis, come every Sunday, you know. And I turned it down. I said that I, I'm just simply not at the point where I can develop two lessons every single solitary week that I spent several weeks working on that one lesson that I preached on Sunday, and I did. I'd spent several weeks working on it. In fact, the one up here was one of the first to ask me to speak every week, and I remember Brother Ponce and them, they said, well, what you need to get you a sermon book, you know. And so it was interesting to me, and I'll show you how naive I was. I had already noticed that even though I was older than the other students, because, see, I had come back to college at 25 years of age, and all these other preacher students were just young guys that are... 18, 19, 20, 21. And they were out preaching, a number of them, every single week. And I marveled at that. And I used to even tell Barbara, I said that uh, that I I don't know if I've got what it takes or not. I says, I just, it takes all I've got to work on a lesson in a couple of weeks' time. And so I got introduced to the sermon books. Well, what they do, see, all these great preachers, volumes have been presented on their sermons, like Charles Spurgeon, for example. You can read hundreds of sermons preached by him and so the, you can buy these sermons and so you just simply buy the sermon of course when you're in the church of Christ you got to pick a sound gospel preacher that means church of Christ preacher if you're in a Baptist church you pick a sound Baptist preacher if you're in a Pentecostal you pick a sound Pentecostal they buy those sermon books and you flip over there and there's any subject you want to speak on you want to speak on hell you want to speak on heaven you want to speak on baptism you want to speak on repentance you just look up the subject and you turn to a sermon well all they were doing was reading that sermon three or four times on Saturday night, making an outline from it, and getting up speaking on Sunday. Well, what they're doing, if that guy happened to hit the truth on all those points, fine, it was a good lesson. But what if he's wrong on something? How are you going to find it out? You know, if he's taking some verse out of context, how do you know that unless you really have, you know, prepared and thought about yourself? Well, what I find myself doing now when I go go and listen to somebody as I. I'm questionable. Almost anything they say, I'll question it. I don't question it verbally, but in my mind, I'm saying, well, I wonder if that's true or not. And what I like to do is go back and study it. And if I did, 
take every lesson now that I hear and go back and study it. You, I spend five or six, seven hours a, a piece for each lesson looking at it. But, but also, there's a lot of things that I hear come up that I know is not right, and it's the best way uh, to study. I think you you don't have enough time to read all the materials that everybody's putting out on their on their thing. But if you spend your time studying the Bible, and I think that's the key. If if I think if everybody could divorce themselves from all their literature that's put out by their group. And, and just simply study the Bible. And when I say study the Bible, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about along with that, using the dictionaries, the encyclopedias, the commentaries. But the point is, what you're studying the Bible. I don't care if you've got three commentaries going and a dictionary and encyclopedia, but all the time you're reading the Bible and then you're using all of these aids to understand this. That's a lot different than listening to just a specific sermon or something. But then after you've done enough of what we're talking about. You don't have any problem evaluating anybody's sermon. You don't have to go home and spend several hours. Right there, you can. You're right. saying you're, you find yourself saying he's taking that out of context, or he made a good point there. You know, but but you you don't have any problem. You just you just do it right away. Well, I guess I, I don't know. I've, right now, the last several Sundays we've been going to the Church of God on Sunday morning. <laughs> And then Wednesday night, last Wednesday night, I went to the Church of Christ in town and went to listen to the Bible study. And I was impressed. The subject they studied was pretty irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. But they, what they're doing, they're going through First Corinthians. But the minister quoted, or he used seven, I think seven commentaries. One of them was, was Adam Clark's. But several of them, I believe, were probably Church of Christ commentaries that were written. You probably know some of the names. I think uh, Johnson was one. Okay, right, um, yes, Johnson. All right, Johnson, uh, Johnson's notes, Johnson came out of the Presbyterian Church. And, uh, in fact, the the church probably that's most represented among those people that came out and then the restoration were either the Presbyterian or the Baptist or the Methodist, those, those three. And see, the Presbyterian Church was the first church to really settle in Tennessee in the Protestant groups and all. That may have been one reason they were the group that was primarily here. But uh, the what you'll find, because you're going to find good and bad and exceptions and everything like that, but you'll probably find as a general rule that there is more emphasis on Bible study within a lot of the Churches of Christ than there will be most other groups. That they, In fact, a lot of times when people visit their services, from other groups, they think they're a little bit cold because the emphasis is on studying the Bible more than on mm-hmm. other aspects of it. The reason that I feel comfortable, it's like myself, that, that I look at it is just like, I, uh, that whether it's the Church of Christ or Baptist or whatnot, is, is like the synagogue that Paul went into in the first century. You've got to go where the people are. If you want to teach and if you want to do some good for God, I can function within the setting in the sense that it's the only group that I know of that does not have a written creed that you have to accept. They may have an oral one that they've got, but man, it's not written and you don't have to sign your name to it or anything like that. Next, they they believe that the author, all authority in religion is in the Bible and not in any man, and they don't and, and they don't listen to anybody that says he's got the Holy Spirit as opposed to the you know what's in the Bible or anything like that. And then third, there is no central organizations to license preachers. And so I can go into an individual church of Christ and, and, and after a period of time establish myself as somebody who is a, you know, a good Christian 
and who is knowledgeable of the Bible and wind up teaching and having a part and everything like that. Just like on the one hand I mentioned there may be those that will have nothing to do with me, but there's a lot that will. And there are individuals just like uh, uh, I could go to the church where my children go in Cookville and worship with them and, and even function entirely with them and have no problem at all. And so there, there are those things that's good. And, and a lot of times when somebody will ask me, why do you go, you know, when you visit or whatnot to the Church of Christ as opposed to such and such? And I say that is the, the very reason. In other words, I simply that uh, have more freedom there so far as the written creed and the licensing of preachers and, and things of that nature. And then also the emphasis is on Bible study itself. And another thing, and of course, this is where I would agree with the Church of God along the one thing here that the Church of God and the Church of Christ as groups have in common. As part of their teaching, they do not believe that Christians should be called Methodist, Baptist, etc. They believe you ought to be a Christian and that you ought to refer to yourself as members of the body of Christ or Church of God or Church of Christ. And, and so both of them have that in agreement, and, and I agree with that. In other words, although I don't believe the church is denominated or named, that... Uh, the followers of Jesus were called Christians and they were known in a way that showed a belonging to God or Christ and and I believe I could not in good conscience go out here and refer to myself as a Methodist or, or a Baptist. Uh, in my mind I'll never be anything but a Christian and I like to be able to say it that way. I'm just simply a Christian, period.